is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Since today is the day after Christmas, like I said, it's kind of hard to speak about the coming of Christmas. But then again, what I've been speaking on over these last uh, three weeks, uh, counting Micah's talk last week, we've been talking about the first coming of Christmas. If you've been with us for all of these talks, you'll remember that we said, the very first Sunday we said is that the Christmas, that first Christmas came at the right time. It was on time. It was in the fullness of time. And then the next week we said that it came with the right message. And, and the message was that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the third week, last week, Micah spoke and he talked about how the, the coming of Christmas was, was by the right method and that Jesus had come from God becoming one of us, that he was God becoming one of us. We talked about the incarnation and, and the virgin birth of Jesus. And today I want to end this Christmas series by talking about how the first Christmas came on the right mission or with the right Mission. I want to talk about the mission of Christmas. What was it that Jesus came here to accomplish? And I know you probably think you know, and you probably do. When I was a kid, I loved the Mission Impossible series. And you love it. I mean, you know, those of us that are old and weird, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. But there was a series called Mission Impossible. And, um, and every week when it, when it showed at the, you know, the, I can't remember the guy's name, but he would, he would get a recording from someone. And it would always end this way. Remember this? It always end... And, and Jim, his name was Jim. And Jim, if you, uh, no, he would say, Jim, this is uh, your mission. If you decide to accomplish, if you decide to take it, he tells them what the mission was. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is, you know, and then the, then the show would start. You know, what was the mission that Jesus was on? If the father had said to Jesus, this is your mission, if you choose to accept it, what would he have said to Jesus? What was the mission? How would we finish that sentence? So I want to tell you what I believe was the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. Here it is. He, the mission of Jesus was to inaugurate the kingdom of God to launch the kingdom of God, to procure the kingdom of God. And as I meditated on that uh, for the last couple of weeks, actually, because like I said, Micah, Micah spoke last week, so I've really had a couple of weeks to be thinking about this. I think there's three components to this mission that Jesus was on to inaugurate uh, the kingdom of God. And uh, so what I'd like to do for a few moments is just share with you these three tasks that were part of his mission to inaugurate the kingdom of God. These are the three things that Jesus uh, came to accomplish, uh, came to accomplish on that mission. So here's the first one. And to inaugurate the kingdom of God or the, the mission of inaugurating the kingdom of God, Jesus came to do this first, to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come. Uh, he had come to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And I spent a lot of time on this, like the second week of this series. So I'm not going to spend hardly any time here other than just to restate it. That was one of the key ingredients to accomplishing his mission. It was to tell everybody that the kingdom of God had come. Joy to the world, the king has come. And let me simply remind you that God promised it. John the Baptist came announcing it. And then Jesus came telling his followers that you, you're, some of you are not even going to die until you see the kingdom of God inaugurated. And I told you that I thought at that time the inauguration of the kingdom was the death and resurrection 
of Jesus. So his mission was to preach and to proclaim that the coming of the kingdom was here. The second aspect or the second part of this mission to inaugurate the kingdom was to prepare messengers to extend and expand the kingdom after he had returned back to heaven. Uh, Jesus came to inaugurate the message by preaching it, but then he also came, and I want to say to you, I think it's just as important as the proclamation component. He came to prepare some men who would then carry on after he had left. And their mission, he was preparing them for their mission, which was to continue proclaiming the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 3, verse 13, we see Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So just as important as in preaching were these 12 men who were going to be with them. He prayed all night, the Bible says, about which 12 he should choose. And, um, and then when, they, when he chose them, he said, I want you to be with me always. And for the next three years, they would be with him always. And he said, I'm going to give you power over the demonic and I'm going to give you power over disease and sickness. And you're going to go and proclaim the kingdom. In Luke 6, 14, here's their names. Uh, there were Simon, whom he also named Peter, and his brother Andrew. There was James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas. There was James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the Canaanite. There was Judas, who was the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would hand Jesus over to be killed. You know, I noticed something this morning that I probably have known in the past but had forgotten. There's three sets of brothers. Did you catch that? There's uh, James and John, there's Peter and Andrew, and then there is uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and his brother Judas. So there's three sets of brothers amongst the, amongst the 12. Why 12? Jesus never tells us why he chose 12. So when he, when he went up on the mountain, there was lots of men that were following. When he came down from praying, he said to those men, I'm choosing you, 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 and he chose 12 of those men. Why 12? And most people think that he chose 12 to draw a connection between the kingdom of God and the, the kingdom of Israel, right? The kingdom uh, that God had inaugurated uh, through Abraham or the people that God had inaugurated through Peter, I mean, through uh, Abraham. God was making a tie between those two groups of people. The 12 patriarchs and the 12 tribes now had 12 disciples and 12 apostles. So Jesus is trying to make a connection. How did he equip them? This is a question that I thought about, and I'm just going to be really quick. How, how, did he, how did he prepare them for the mission? Here's what he did. I want to suggest four things. And, and again, remember these four things. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, these would be good to note down because I think we need to emulate Jesus on this. But here, here's how he did it. He lived the kingdom before them. So for three years, Jesus had these men and he just lived in front of them what it meant to be part of his kingdom. And so just for a couple of examples, you know, where, where people of that day wouldn't eat with sinners, Jesus ate with sinners and he loved sinners and he loved people. And he said that God cared about people and that God was here for everybody, that Jesus loved the whole world. So he's living this out. He's rescuing Zacchaeus. Come on out of the tree, Zacchaeus, because today I'm going to go have lunch with you. And on and on and on, he lived this kingdom ethic in front of them. So I want to suggest that he equipped them for the mission by illustrating it in front of them, living the, the kingdom life in front of them. Secondly, he didn't just live it, but he taught them about the kingdom continually. 
He taught them what the kingdom was like. And he did this primarily through parables or an awful lot through parables. And, uh, and you'll remember that uh, they, they were like, why are you doing parables? Because they didn't really follow the parables necessarily either. But Jesus would then later explain the parables to them. And he made this statement. He says, for to you, it has been granted to understand the secrets of the kingdom. And so when Jesus, Jesus taught them about the kingdom, he doesn't just illustrate it for them in his life, but he taught them specifics about the kingdom and who he was. And you remember at the very end, after he'd been resurrected, it says that he went through the Bible and explained to them how Messiah was all throughout the scriptures. He taught them. The third thing he did was he showed them how to proclaim the kingdom. This is similar to the first part, but the first part, he's just living out the kingdom ethic, but he taught them how to go and preach the kingdom. And he did this because three years they're with him continually. And what is he doing for three years, everyone? He's just preaching the kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom everywhere he goes and they're watching him. And so they're getting to know how to, how to preach the kingdom. And then the final thing he did was he trained them and then he sent them out under his tutelage. Under, while he's still here, he's sending them out. So he sends them out first the 12. Then he sends 72 disciples that were following him. He sends 72 men out to proclaim the kingdom. He's preparing them and training them. And by the way, that just goes to show you he's not just, he's training the 12 specifically, but he's got a bigger, he's got a bigger group of men that he's training to carry on the mission. Now, before his death, Jesus prays this for his men. He knows one of them is going to betray him. And in John 17, 18, he says this, as he's talking to God, as you, God, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I'm sending them into the world. And then we get to Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel at the very end, you know, the, the, the last things he says to them, what is it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, of all the ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the age. So, so here, here we have Jesus launch. Here's the mission of Jesus, is to launch the kingdom of God. And he's got three things he's got to do in doing that. Number one is, you know, he's got to proclaim it's here. Number two, he's got to prepare men to carry on after, after he's gone. And that brings us to the third part. And, and this is where I really want to focus. And I hope you take notes. This, is going, this last part's going to be kind of like a class, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that it'll help you and, and maybe just, you know, maybe teach you, encourage you. But here's the third thing he came to do. He came to procure the people for the kingdom of God. And I'm alliterating there, so let me just use another word. He, he, came to, he came to save the people for the kingdom of God. He came to rescue the people for the kingdom of God. Jesus came to make a way for us to be a part of his forever kingdom. He came to invite us to join him in his everlasting kingdom. But we got a problem. You know what the problem is? Every one of us dies. Every one of us returns to the dust of the earth. Every one of us is like a flower that's here for a moment. And then when it's gone, you can't even remember where it was. So all of us have a problem. We, we are mortal. We're going to die. And yet Jesus came to procure for us immortality. He came to procure for us the ability to live forever in his kingdom. So let me see if I can defend this and, and substantiate what I'm claiming. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 says, God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, 
who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. God alone is immortal, uh, Paul tells Timothy. And, but God says, I want to grant to you guys. Im-. What, what God means is God alone has innate immortality. And he wants to grant to us who are mortal, he wants to grant to us immortality. To everyone who by faith seeks him and loves him and loves his son, he wants to grant to them immortality. So here's Paul again to Timothy in his second letter this time. He says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has given to us in Messiah Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Messiah Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the good news. And what did we say the good news was? It's the good news of the kingdom of God. He's brought to life for us immortality through the good news of the kingdom of God. So God, through Jesus, gives us life and immortality. Here's Paul to the church at Rome. God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. I tell you what, I hesitated to use that verse because it needs some unpacking, but I'm not going to do that. I simply wanted you to see that God gives eternal life to those who by glory and honor seek immortality. Here's another verse from Corinthians to the the church of Corinth. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus came to procure for us, to purchase for us, to buy for us, to ransom us from death and give us life forever and immortality in his kingdom. Now, how did he do that? Now, track with me, because I really want you to, I really want you to, I've got some neat things to tell you today. How did he do that? Now, here's what I want you to hear. There is absolutely, listen, there is absolutely no disagreement among any stripe of Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal, you name it, we all agree on how Jesus did this for us. Anybody want to take a guess or have I made it so bad that you'd be scared to guess because if you guessed wrong, right? No. So I'm going to just tell you, okay, here's how he did it. All right. He died for us. (laughs) That is how Jesus procures immortality for us. He dies for us. The word for that is atonement, okay? The word atonement means to reconcile or to bring back into oneness or unity. So so 
Jesus dies for us to atone for us, to bring us back into this oneness or this unity with God. So, I mean, I mean, the Bible is so filled with this that it's, it's hard to pick verses. But Matthew 20, 26 says, whoever wants to become great, this is Jesus speaking, among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's Paul to Timothy. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. There it is. One mediator between God and us, the man Messiah Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. And in the context, he's talking about his death. Here's specific, Paul, to Rome. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's John, 1 John 3, 16. This is how we've come to know love. Jesus laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And, and one more verse. And there, I mean, there's just so many. Okay, so many. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the context, we're talking about death there because as, as, as the snake be lifted up on the pole, so the Son of God must be lifted up on the cross. But here's Jesus on the night before his death. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body that's broken for you. And if, you have any, if you have any doubt, he's talking about his death. He then takes the cup of wine and he says, this is my blood that is shed for you as a new covenant. He's basically saying, I'm getting ready to lay down my life for you. So Jesus came here on a mission to secure for us life, eternal life, immortality with God, resurrection from the dead. And he did it by laying down his life for us, by dying for us. Now, if, 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 you're, if you're thinking ahead, maybe you are, you might be asking this question because I've asked it a whole bunch. I mean, Christians have asked it since the beginning. Why does Jesus' death rescue us from, from death? Why did, why did he die? Why, why was death the way that God would rescue all of us? And, and just as we universally agree that he died for us, we absolutely are divided over that, the answer to that second question. How does the death of Jesus rescue us from our sin, whose penalty is death? How does, our, how does the death of Jesus rescue us from our death? And so over the centuries since Jesus was here, the church, meaning us who believe, we've grappled with that question, and we don't universally agree here, and we've come up with a lot of different theories as to how Jesus' death for us frees us from our death, right, or rescues us from our death. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes, and this is where it comes class, classroom-like, I'd like to share with you five of the most prolific or most, most held-to views of how Jesus ransoms us by his death, all right? So this is, remember, this is, here's the, here's the goal of this message. Jesus came that first Christmas on mission. He came on the right mission, and his mission was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He did it by preaching, and then he did it by preparing men to carry on after him, and he did it by this, procuring for us eternal life. 
All right, how does his death do that? The oldest view is called the ransom theory of atonement. The ransom theory of atonement. Should be on the, is it on the screen behind me? Yes, it is. The ransom uh, theory. And this, for the, listen to this. For the first thousand years after Jesus, this is what most Christians believe took place when Jesus died. And, and they believed that Jesus was a ransom from God the Father to Satan so that we could be free. Remember, we had sinned. We'd listened to Satan. Adam and Eve had listened to Satan. And uh, he'd become the, uh, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible calls him the ruler of this world. And so we're kind of under his bondage. And, uh, and so the early church believed that God ransomed us from Satan because we had fallen under his leadership because of our sin. We fell under him. We belonged to him. And God sent Jesus, this perfect man, and, and, and Satan was willing to exchange Messiah Jesus for all of us. But we kind of, God kind of tricked him, right? And he didn't realize that Jesus would be God become a person. And so it's kind of like a bait and switch sort of thing, right? Jesus ransomed us. Satan gave us back so that we could be free to go to God. And Jesus, then, of course, after his death, he, uh, you know, infinite mighty power of God that he was, right? He, he walked out of hell with the, with the keys of hell. And for the first thousand years, that's what the church believed, that Jesus was God was ransoming us with the death of Jesus, but Jesus had tricked Satan. And of course, some of the verses I read to you today talk about the ransom, right? Did you hear them? Now here's one, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The passage in, that Paul said to Timothy that uh, he's a ransom for, for all. St. Gregory of Nyssa, 300 AD, described this bait and switch sort of thing like this. He said, God was hidden under the veil of our nature, that so, as with a ravenous fish, the hook of God might be gulped down by Satan along with the bait of flesh. In other words, he didn't realize it was God. And so he took the bait and Jesus ransomed us from Satan's hole. Now, that's the first one. About a thousand years later came the medieval view, which was known as the substitutionary theory of atonement. And so Anselm was kind of one of the first people to, to, to challenge, if you would, and I guess maybe, I don't know if he's the first to challenge, but his writings were the first to be taken seriously, I guess. But in 1099, right, at, almost at 1100, uh, he wrote how absurd it was that God would have to ransom us from Satan. He said, what is Satan? Satan? I mean, there's no dualism in the universe. Satan's not like God. God doesn't have to ransom us from Satan. And so Anselm said that was absurd. And he, he said that what Jesus did for us wasn't ransom us from Satan, but we had dishonored God with our sin. We had dishonored God. And so God... And if we were to pay for the dishonor, death was the payment for that dishonor to God. Jesus came and bore our death so that God's honor could be restored. And so Jesus substituted himself, the, the God-man substituted himself and died in our place to restore God's, uh, God's honor. So Jesus was sacrificed that God's honor might be, um, what would you call it? Honor restored? so that God's honor might be restored. 
That was called the substitutionary atonement. 500 years later, the reformers put a little twist to that substitutionary theory, and they called their view, or what it would, be, it would become called the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. It's 500 years after Anselm, and John Calvin was one of the first to articulate this. And he said, no, it's not that God's honor was offended. It's that God's justice, God had pronounced a penalty on sin, and the penalty on sin was we would die, and we've sinned. And so therefore, God's justice needs to be met, and that justice would be met in Jesus, that Jesus would die in our stead, so that the justice, the just claim of God, that the sinner who sins shall die, that could be fulfilled. Jesus, the, and again, all of these are that the infinite God could, uh, could do this for us that he could be the stand-in for us. And so they held to a substitutionary view of atonement, that Jesus dying for us was substitutionary, but they said it wasn't to appease God's honor. It wasn't to make God's honor right. It was to, to fulfill God's righteous judgment against, against sin. Now, they didn't call it the penal substitutionary view until the 1800s. That's like three or 400 years later. That's when they named it. It was called the penal substitutionary view of atonement. But, uh, but if you go back to the Protestant confessions of the Reformation, they all speak of this, that Jesus died to bear in himself the punishment of our sin so that God's justice and righteousness might be met. And by the way, this is the primary view of evangelicals today. Not all evangelicals hold to this view, but I would say most would, would affirm the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. And, and you, find, you find evidence for this one in, in the Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant dies for the iniquities of others. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the sacrifices were dying instead of the people and their sin. Uh, and then, of course, we got the book of Romans. The difference between Anselm's substitutionary atonement and the penal view is this. In Anselm's theory, punishment is averted. In the penal substitutionary view, Jesus absorbs the punishment that is ours. Now, not everybody found those things attainable, right? And so French philosopher and ethicist Peter Abelard, this is from the 12th century, so that would be in the 1100s. And remember that uh, it was um, Anselm who began to speak, uh, to begin to write about the substitutionary idea in the 1100s. But, but Peter Abelard said this whole idea that somebody, an innocent person, would die for someone else, that's just, that's, that's abhorrent. That's absurd, they wrote, he wrote. This is what he said. Indeed, how cruel and wicked it seems that anyone should demand the blood of an innocent person, i.e. Jesus, as the price for anything, or that it should in any way please God that an innocent man should be slain, still less that God should consider the death of his son so agreeable that by it he should be reconciled to the whole world. Abelard said it was just, it's crazy that God would want someone to, someone, innocent person to die. Now, this is just, I'm going to insert this right. It's not even in my notes, but I just want you to know that Jesus as God, it's not God sacrificing an innocent person. It's God himself entering in and taking uh, our punishment or the dishonor, whichever, you know, he's, he's doing it, not, not just an, a random innocent person. God's doing it himself. But, but Anselm proposed this, and we're going to call this from the substitutionary pushback view, and it's called the moral influence theory. And the moral influence theory that, that uh, Abelard put forward was this, that Jesus dies for us 
to give us an example of what it looks like to really be good, to really love. And that influence of Jesus is going to turn us back to God. So the cross speaks to us about how good God is. And there, there's, no, there's no punishment that needs to be fulfilled. There's, there's no justice of God that needs to be dealt with. There's no, we haven't offended God in any way. But we've just, by the hardness of our hearts, turned away from God. And what we needed was for God to come here and in Jesus just show us how wonderful it is to love, how wonder, what it looks like to love. And that love would just draw us back to God. And that was the moral influence theory. And uh, so where, where in the other views, Jesus becomes the bearer of man's be- uh, worst, right? And dying for them. In this view, Jesus is the best of man dying for us so that we might be, might be influenced by that. Here's, one of those propo- here's a proponent of the moral influence theory. He says, the work of Christ chiefly consists of demonstrating to the world the amazing depths of God's love of sinful humanity. There is nothing inherent in God that must be appeased before he is willing to forgive humanity, before he's willing to forgive humanity. The problem lies in the sinful, hardened human heart with its fear and ignorance of God. Through the incarnation and the death of Jesus, the love of God shines like a beacon beckoning humanity to come back to God and fellowship. And their proof text verse would be 1 Peter 2, 22. For this you have been called because Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. John 13, 13 says, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're rightly speaking since that is what I am. So if I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So there's the proof text from the Bible that says, hey, it's the it's the example of Jesus that draws us back to God. That's how his death did that. That theory didn't really take uh, much hold until about a thousand uh, about a thousand years uh, excuse me, that theory wasn't put forth to about a thousand years ago, but it really gained prominence in the 19th century. The 19th century was the 1800s, and that's when when liberal theologians began to doubt the authority of Scripture. And as they had doubted the authority of Scripture, they were dismissing of passages that speak of of God's justice and righteousness. Hang in there, guys. Hang in there. Okay, I got one more. And this last one is the most modern. It's called the Christer Victus uh, theory of atonement, or Christ is the victor theory of atonement. It was, it was put forth in 1930, just shy of 100 years ago. Swedish theologian Gustav Allen published it, uh, and then it was translated a year later into English. And here's what, here's what Gustav said. He said, earth and heaven have been engaged in this cosmic struggle between good uh, God and evil Satan. And Jesus was sent here to battle against the forces of darkness, against the kingdom of darkness, and to inaugurate the kingdom of light. So Jesus came here and fought this cosmic battle with Satan. And, uh, and, Satan, and Jesus defeated Satan. And, and by defeating Satan, he restored our right as people that we'd given up to Satan. He restores our right to rule over the earth like God had told us to do in Genesis chapter 1. And... Um, 
Biblically, supporters, you know, point to all kinds of themes in the scripture about the power of Satan during the time that Jesus was here. Now he talked about how he's got to bind Beelzebub. You all remember those, those passages? And uh, talks about our slavery to sin. Jesus came to set us free from our slavery to sin. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of these thematic ideas throughout the New Testament where Jesus is kind of fighting sort of a cosmic battle. And they say that the atonement really has to do more with this cosmic war between God and Satan than it does to do, than has to do with my own personal relationship uh, with Jesus. Um, one, one writer says, um, we are reconciled because the cosmos has been reconciled, because the rebel powers have been put in their place. We can be presented holy and blameless before God. Christ is presented as the victor over the evil one. Now, the problem with this view of atonement in my mind is this. It begs the question, how does Jesus' death do all that? How does Jesus' death win over Satan? I mean, we don't know that. It doesn't tell us that. Um, You know, how does the cross defeat the evil elements of the universe? We don't know that. How are we freed from sin because Jesus died when it's a cosmic battle out there? And if, if he did, why are, we, uh, why are we still fighting sin? I'm still fighting sin. Y'all still fighting sin? Why are we still fighting sin if all that's true? One critic writes of this theory, like the ransom theory, it falls apart when pressed too hard for details. And because there's no details about how Jesus dies for us. It's a great picture and people love it. The idea that Christ is the victor and he is the victor, Right. But it doesn't really answer the question, how does Jesus' death actually atone and reconcile us to God? So let's draw this to a close. And uh, hopefully, hopefully you've learned something today and not just been bored. Let me, uh, let me, I say that because of the looks on your faces, I'm sorry. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. And, And this is what I've said to myself over the years of looking at this. None of these theories of atonement seem complete or absolute to me. I don't know if they, if you felt that way or not. But they, they, none of them in itself feels like it's, this is the complete picture. In fact, I'm, I'm just a pastor. I'm not a renowned or important theologian. I'm just a pastor who, who wants to study the Word of God. And, uh, and though I find the idea of the penal substitutionary view of atonement the most, uh, the, the most biblically supported, let me say it that way, man, I I see these others as well, right? I see the cosmic battle that Jesus fought because there is a cosmic battle at some level that he fought so that at his return, the Bible says the curse will be lifted off the entire universe, right? So there is a sense in which Jesus won some sort of cosmic victory by his death and resurrection. And and the and the, and the moral influence uh, theory of atonement. I mean, I believe Jesus came to definitely be a shining beacon for us, a moral influence that tells us how we should leave, live and ought to live. In fact, I want to suggest to you that being a disciple is that you look at Jesus and you model your life, you live your life after him. You live the way he want, he lived and the way he wants us to live. So I, I see all of those different views. I, I see those different atonement theories, Th- though I think the, like the penal substitutionary one to me has, is the, is the, seems to deal most or best with the scriptures. I can see them all. So I'm not suggesting that we stop pressing to know the truth. In fact, if there's, listen, if there's anything that's characterized my life in this last fifth or last quarter of my life, 
I would say that it's been this desire to know the truth and to dig for the truth and to not just be having told this is the truth and then accept that as so. I, I've, I have wanted to dig and know the truth. And I want to say to all of you, don't ever stop digging. Don't ever stop wanting to know the truth. Ne- never, you know, the, the, the reformers cry, which we don't, we don't really uh, heed much anymore. They, they were, I can't remember how it is in Latin, but it was this, always reforming. Always reforming. They were always saying, let's always be challenging what we've believed against the word of God and let the word of God be our teacher. So that when the Anabaptists came along and they were saying the word of God says this and the other reformers, they weren't even willing to listen. And instead they put to death the Anabaptists through who are most like us in our thinking today about baptism and personal regeneration and those sort of things. That they were, they were not willing to keep on looking at the text of Scripture and saying, what does the text say? We should always be looking. We should always be growing. We should always be learning. If there's any challenge to you guys in 2022, and I'm getting ahead of myself because this is going to be my talk next week, it is to, that you should always be growing, always be pressing on to be like Jesus and to learn the deep truths of His Word. Don't be content. Do not be content And if you're listening on live stream, do not be content with just listening to what I say and say, well, that's it. That's that's what I believe. That's true. Let let my words and the word of God be a challenge to you to seek the scriptures, to seek the truth. Be a Berean. Remember the Bereans, right? And we, we quote them a lot. But the Bereans were the guys that when Paul came and challenged everything that they had ever believed... Instead of like the Thessalonians who said, that's not what we believe. That's not what we were taught. And they turned against Paul. The Bereans said, hey, let's go search the Old Testament and see if what he's saying is true. And so that's how I need to be and you need to be. So I'm kind of off on a tangent here. But my point was, when it comes to these theories of atonement, we, we, we definitely should just always be digging, saying, God, you know, and, and it does matter. It does matter why Jesus, we know that Jesus died for us and that's ultimately what matters. But but I think it's important for us to try to figure out why is it that Jesus dying for us rescues us from death? Why? I think it's important. So Jesus came on the right mission and it was to proclaim the kingdom of God, to prepare his messengers to carry it out there. These are the aspects of his mission. And then to procure a people for his kingdom. However that worked, he did it by dying for us. So what's the takeaway for us? I just got ahead of myself and the takeaway said was to always be learning. And yeah, that's next week's message. What's the takeaway from this? I've, I've, got, uh, I've got a couple of things. Here, here's the first one. Go and proclaim the kingdom, everyone. We are the ones who have been prepared by the ones that Jesus prepared to go and preach the kingdom. Remember, Jesus prepared them to go and preach the kingdom. And so here's the takeaway, everyone. Go and preach the kingdom of God. Go tell people about Jesus. Go tell people about eternal life. Go tell people about uh, how Jesus conquered death. And we have the hope one day that at his return, he'll form out of the dust all of us again and breathe into us the, the life that we once had. And I believe it'll be with all our memories and we'll be the same person that we were when we died. He's going to raise us from the dead. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God, everyone. That is your mission. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Every one of us. 
We're to go and proclaim the kingdom. Here's the second thing. Go prepare messengers for the kingdom. Go preach the kingdom, but then do like Jesus. He preached the kingdom, but then he prepared the messengers for the kingdom. And I mean, that's his last word to us. Go and make disciples who are going to then take the kingdom message onward. I listen, if we drop the ball here, if we drop the ball here, there'll be no generation in the future to carry on the kingdom. If we don't, if we don't carry the kingdom to this generation, then the kingdom of God, there's no one to proclaim it. So we need to prepare, we need to be prepare, preparing our young people, preparing ourselves, preparing each other as messengers of the kingdom. And the third thing is go and procure people for the kingdom. Well, hopefully you're right in, in your heart. You said, nope, <laughs> that's right. We can't do that. Jesus has already done that part. I mean, we can, we can pick up his mission of proclaiming and we can pick up his mission of preparing. We cannot pick up the mission of procuring people for the kingdom because Jesus did that. It was by his death, not by yours. It's not by your righteous living. It's not by anything you do that you can proclaim, that you can procure people for the kingdom, but you can present. This is why presenting the kingdom to the people is so important. This is why preparing each other is so important because we can't, I can't procure my children into the kingdom of God. You can't either. Only Jesus can do that. And so you should be proclaiming Jesus and preparing messengers to take the kingdom message to the world. And I'd like to invite you to do that in this next year. I'd like to invite you with all your heart to say in your seat right now, whether it's here or somewhere else watching this, is to say, God, I, I, I really want to do that. I really want to be a proclaimer of the kingdom. I really want to be a preparer of the messengers. I really want to do that. And I want to end, I want to end with those of you that are not part of the kingdom. I want to invite you to join those of us that are kingdom seekers. I, I want to invite you to be a part of the kingdom. I want to invite you. I mean, maybe, maybe you're on the edge and you've never. Sorry about that. Uh, was that God telling me to be in? <laughs> Go ahead and end, Jimmy. <laughs> No, that was God saying, listen, if you need to be a part of the kingdom, join the kingdom. Why not join the kingdom, everyone? If God is drawing your heart, if his moral example is challenging, so many people have come to Jesus because they've looked at him and they've said, what an incredible man. And they followed Jesus because of his moral example, only to learn that it was his death that procures for them the kingdom of God. Yeah, if, you, if, if, if it's the moral example of Jesus that's drawing you, if it's the fact that you recognize your sin and you feel your alienation from God, come join the kingdom. Come join us kingdom seekers and be a part of the kingdom. You said, Jimmy, I don't know how to join the kingdom. Yeah, you do, man. Just follow the king. Just, just bow your knee to the king and say, I want to follow you. I, I want to belong to you. Forgive me. Take me into your kingdom. Remember the thief on the cross didn't do one good thing that we know of, one, one religious thing, nothing with regard to Jesus, maybe meeting Jesus for the very first time. He's dying on the cross beside him. And Jesus says, I mean, he says, man, would you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus says, yep. And in my paradise, you'll be with me there. <clears throat> so if you're not a kingdom seeker, I invite you today. Become a kingdom, a part of the kingdom come by faith. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com. 
to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.